Bob Holman, welcome to the new school. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. How very new. <laughs> <laughs> so Bob Holman is, is a poet. Uh, he is the founder and proprietor of the Bowery Poets Club and the artistic director of Bowery Arts and Science, the nonprofit that programs the club. And he's a poet most often connected with the oral tradition with live voicings of poetry and poetry in digital media, the spoken word, performance, hip-hop, slam, poetry films, and endangered languages. The Daily News calls him the ringmaster of the spoken word. Uh, Village Voice calls him the poetry czar. Seventeen Magazine calls him dean of the scene. He studied poetry at Columbia, where he now teaches, he finds it fulfilling becoming the guy he used to laugh at. He also teaches at NYU. But he says his real poetry schooling was the Lower East Side with Allen Ginsberg, John Giorno, Ann Waldman. Is it Mickey or Mikey Pinero? Um, Mikey Pinero. Pinero. Hetty Jones, Ed Sanders, Amiri Baraka, Ted Berrigan, and others. Uh, he ran readings at and was coordinator of the St. Mark's Poetry Project from 1977 to 84, and was the original slam master at the New Yorkan, is that New Yorican. New Yorican Poets Cafe, uh, and has published 16 books of poetry, if you include CDs and DVDs. Um, so he also founded the first major spoken word label, uh, Mouth Almighty Mercury, and produced the award-winning public broadcasting system, the United States of Poetry. Uh, and is currently working on two endangered language projects, uh, Lost Worlds, a poem of many tongues, with each line from a different minority endangered tongue, and Word Up, Language Matters with Bob Holman. And very much the point, um, he is working on a PBS special, uh, two hours on endangered languages. And he's working with our friend, Commonweal friend, uh, David Grubin. Uh, uh, and David Grubin is the filmmaker who um, made the PBS series Healing in the Mind um, with Bill Moyers, which featured the cancer help program at Commonweal as the fifth part. So I actually uh, met Bob uh, through our mutual friend, Kathy Komaroff Goodman, and our mutual friends, David and Joan Grubin. And that's how we come to be sitting here today. It's um, nice to have provenance. <laughs> really. And uh, uh, Bob is also a, a good friend of Joanne Kiger and David Garovich, who are both here today. Um, and um, Bob's daughter, Daisy, I mentioned, is uh, Daisy Holman, who's with the Diebenkorn Foundation in Oakland, is also in the audience. So it's um, a, a little community of uh, the New York uh, uh, Bolinas Yo-Yo. Uh, Yo-Yo um, conjunction. <laughs> so, Bob, before I say any more, let me invite you to start with a poem. Would you be willing to read or recite hip-hop, The Other Thought? Well, <clears throat> sure. It, well, this is actually maybe the... Uh, it, it is. No, 
it isn't. I was going to say it's the first poem I, I wrote in using the hip-hop form. Came about um, late 70s, New Eurekan Poets Cafe, out on the dance floor. Listen up. It's a poem uh, that I'm dancing to. Always one of the great uh, um, dreams to dance to poetry. It's um, These Are the Breaks by K. Curtis Blow. I think it's 1978. And, uh, you know, it's hip-hop, uh, which just was was being birthed at that moment. And so after dancing, I run home and I write my poem and I go back the next night to the New Eurekan and say, okay, I'm ready to go with my hip-hop poem, my rap. It was a rap. Those days you just called it a rap. It was a rap. Um, okay, Bob, says Miguel Algarin. You're on. And Willie Correa in the booth starts hitting me with the lights like it's Las Vegas, like I'm a real hip-hop rapper. <clears throat> and I go into it. I got a rock and roll mythology. I got a total apocalypse mythology. I got the most post-hysterical poetry. And if it ain't coming at you, it's breezed on by. I got the heavy-duty political intent. I got the word farm, free form, diamond doodle content. I got breezy ways and bop. Been raised, and when the word explodes, the mother load is where I'm at, and it's light here, but you cannot see. It doesn't matter anyway, since you cannot breathe. You see, the words mean they're putting on the squeeze. I can strangle you, eh? What's that mean? Say what he say. Say what he say. He said he say. He said he said. Say what he said. Go on, say he said. What he say? He said. That's what he said. That's what he said to say. He said to say. Open up the book with your finger hook. And scan it with your television eyes. Television eyes. Television eyes. Television eyes. Oh, fuck with your eyes. Stick out your tongue. Memorize. It's just you reading. The book is breathing. Beautiful. Well, well I, uh, I know you want to applaud after that, don't you? <laughs> now, why is it that you want to applaud after that, but you don't, you're not allowed to applaud after the poet reads the poem because you don't want to intrude? And that's the difference between the orality that I'm working in in that medium, which wants to have a call and response. Now, I know we're much too cool and sophisticated to heckle me here, but that would be a, uh, another response. But the applause is the standard response, even if it's not the standard response for the... <laughs> for the... For the... Uh, for a for poetry reading. But that was... Uh, just to make short... Make long story short. I couldn't read the poem because the lights were so extraordinary that I couldn't read it off the page. And that was the first time I said, okay, I'm going to break with Alan's dictum that you poet must have the paper because that's the, the transmitter of the poem. I'm going to have to memorize this poem. Mm. So that was, that's not the poem you asked me to do. Maybe we'll come back to the other no, thought. That's but, uh, uh, well, but that was so cool. Moment. That's so cool. Why don't you do the one that uh, I asked you to do? <laughs> Last night... Just before I fell asleep, one final thought began to race me to the dream. 
intercepting the sweet powers of Morpheus and pressing me to wakefulness and purpose, I drew my pen and prepared to write down this final thought of my existence, or so it seemed. The thought itself was lying near dead as I retrieved it. It called itself the other thought. What? A thought appearing in my mind that's not of my thinking. A thought I thought I'd exiled that thought, banished it as not of me, not me enough. Then, urging me to please shut up, the other thought continued. Do not dwell upon the political implications inherent in your own inability to entertain any but your own precious thought, buddy. Rather, amend your ways to allow other thoughts existence. Write not the poem, write the other poem. Tis impossible, I countered, for by so doing, by giving vent to the other, am I precluding the very basis of my own existence, the essence of me? <laughs> With that, the other thought became a shiver that scoured my spine, and I find myself engaged in application. To wrap the wrap of the truest groove, there's no stopgap from the first remove. This either or thing is just one more thing. A touch too much, a tad too bad, a bit too wit, a mite too tight explode in your mind. A tiny grenade leaving the impression the other thought made. Well, I never thought, I never thought the other, I never thought the other, the other thought's gonna get you. The other thought's gonna get you. The impossible rap. The impossible rap. Why, that's impossible. Wait a second. Wait a second, second. Oh, and if you say rapping is just scratching on the surface, I think I know what's making you so nervous. You say you don't understand the beat. Put your ears to the ground. Listen to your feet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, oh, might as well go to bed. Chill that hot thought head. Good night. Sleep tight. Twix waking and sleeping. The other thought is creeping and leaping into place right before your face with a certain grace. Well, in that case, is it impossible? A sine qua non. It's a itsy bitsy skitsy. Other thoughts on the phone. So humiliating when your brain is on call waiting. It's so humiliating when your brain is on call waiting. Back, 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 back before you thought it. Back, 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 back before you were there too. How do you do? Is your thick on the blink? And what is it to you? You can't tell what from what not. Oh, that's what the other thoughts thought thought. Oh, that's real clear. You can take your tongue out of my ear. Another other thought is surfacing. The surface disappears. Caramba, take a number. Get in line with your mind. Whoa, I'm in with the out crowd. The other thoughts crying out loud. Take the alternate. Take the alternate. Take the alternate. Take the rush to resolution is not a solution. The impossible rap is ready to appear. Is it possible you are ready to hear? It's got something to do with what you just said. So you can't remember in the back of your head the dream you don't surrender when you get out of bed. Just return to sender. Think the other thought instead. 
in order to transcend the end. <laughs> I got to ask you two questions. How many poems? Start with the other one. <laughs> All right, I will start with the other one. I will start with the other one. What's it like to live with yourself? What is it like to be inside your head? Oh, it's lonely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really curious. What on a daily basis, what is it like to live with what your mind and spirit are doing. I, I'm pretty sure it's pretty much like everybody else. You know? I don't think so. Well, Daisy, what do you, you know, Daisy, you know, lived with me for many, many years. Is he just like everybody else? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know what goes on inside yeah, I don't think I know. I mean, I really do, as far as inside my head goes, I mean, I really do physically inhabit the folds and, and greasy grayness of the, the physicality in there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I'm not a, a scientist. I'm not a brain surgeon. But I work like that up there. You know, I mean, it's... It's, you know, you can really, you know, you are in there in your brain. You know. I mean, you're in there in your body, too. And your brain is part of your body. You know how I'm, what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, um, but, you know, I'm re- reminded of what my shrink is always talking about, about boundaries, you know. And I, somehow or other, I missed that part, you know, that... Uh, that there are boundaries, and um, I think that's, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing better now. Um, Daisy's nodding for the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's so it's perfect. That's the thing about poetry um, is that there are no boundaries so long as you see communication, language as the essence of being human and poetry as the essence of language, then you're free to, uh, you're boundaryless, you know, to do um, there. And that's, that's, so luckily I have a good job. I'm, a, I was, I'm able to do it as a, as a, as a poet. Right. You know? So the question I was going to ask you, which you asked me to ask you second, was how many poems do you carry around in your head, like the two you just uh, spoke? Just, uh, you know, the, they, I call them the, my party pieces. And there's, you know, maybe a dozen, a or, dozen so. or so. I, I wish, you know, I, I wish I had every, all of my poems uh, in, in that form. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, working with uh, poets in the oral tradition, like Papa Suso, my griot from the Gambia, you learn that uh, that what that you can't memorize unless it's written down. So, for those who work without books in the oral tradition, and this is not entirely true, but um, most of those traditions are a creation of the poem for the event, for the audience where you are. And so you don't have to memorize them. In fact, so I am, you know, working with, 
you know, creating what the, what they call freestyle in in uh, in hip hop now. You know, although a lot of them are kind of memorized, but so are kind of memorized is the way it is. And I can do that pretty much with you know with a lot of my poems. I'd rather not, but I can. Mm-hmm. So. Um, your wife, uh, uh, who died in 2007, was a, a very distinguished uh, painter, Elizabeth Murray. I think she had the first solo exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art when they moved into their new mm-hmm. That's wing. right. Good work. And um, uh, she was diagnosed with lung cancer, metastatic to the brain. She was given six months to live. She lived over two and a half years and, and was painting right up until near her death. Is that... That's that's very good. Yeah, yes, right. yeah. um, and uh, please describe her work for us. Uh, you mentioned that her canvases were very unusual. Yeah, she would use multi canvases in a painting, um, and they were shaped canvases that folded on top of themselves, revealing what's behind the painting, and uh, and propelled. Um, where sometimes the painting on the canvases wanted to stay put. Sometimes the the canvas itself would propel it forwards and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the painting would be coming off. They were, were, so they call that biomorphically shaped in that they were not, uh, like some people, they weren't, you know, know, zigzag, variants on geometric forms. They were her own forms that she would think up and draw on huge pieces of paper that would then become the uh, blueprints for what these canvases would be. And then she'd go to work painting on these. Uh, Chuck Close, um, the the artist and photographer, um, has talked often about how Amazing it is that with it's not enough that you're limited to the to the canvas. She would shape the canvases and then be limited to painting on them. And uh, anyway, she, th- these were huge, generally huge. Was huge, you know. It wasn't unusual to have a painting that was twelve by fifteen or so. But then they were, and they would come off the wall three feet or more, and. Uh, just incredible uh, objects, um, which to her were just paintings, and then she'd paint away on that, and uh, with a great sense of humor and uh, a metaphor that you could sort of see of um, objects in there, but also uh, abstract, very colorful, very funny. You know, it's hard to get funny into a painting. I thought they were funny. I think they're funny anyway, and 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 just you know. If you see an Elizabeth Murray, you'll always know that's an Elizabeth Murray. There's a beautiful book, which you brought with you, really exquisite, uh, that uh, you did poems and Chuck Close, uh, you just mentioned, did photographs, called A Couple of Ways of Doing Something. And there's this just exquisite uh, portrait of Elizabeth, along with a praise poem for Elizabeth Murray, um, and I have to say that having Daisy here uh, with us is um, really special because the resemblance to your mother, Daisy, is uh, quite extraordinary. So it's um, wonderful to see her 
living on in you in this way. Um, would you be willing to read the praise poem, Elizabeth Murray? Well, <laughs> ask a poet to do that, huh? Hi there, Elizabeth. Hello. This is, these are actually daguerreotypes, right, that Chuck took, uh, which were the first photographs. And they are, have one point of focus, and then everything falls away. And it really shows up your, uh, your, all your, what do they call every wart and hair noggle. And um, Elizabeth, you're right, she always is beautiful. And this was the poem th that uh, was commissioned by San Francisco Art Institute when Elizabeth won, uh, or was awarded a, uh, an honorary degree. And Chuck heard me read it and said, and when, and then that was the birth of the idea of us are doing this collaboration. Praise poem, Elizabeth Murray. Elizabeth Murray, she deserves more of these degrees. She needs one for every color on her palette, which she spins like a plate spinner, a palette spinner. Colors spill all over her canvases. Yeah, sure. And hey, 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 the canvases are created by the colors splashing, spilling. They collect into the shapes. Follow these words like her paintings. Follow those shapes and give Elizabeth Murray a big round of more honorary degrees and high honors. Her paintings are music to opera. She listens to a lot of opera. I have to drown it out to write so you can see Donizetti, Gluck, Mozart, Charpentier, Bellini, opera all over her paintings to escape. Let's dive into an Elizabeth Murray painting. Come on, come on, dive in a cup. You dive first. Okay, I'll jump first. Dive first into swirl, whirlpool. I dive. You paddle with one of those spoons she does and will not escape chorus. No, will not escape. No, We'll, we'll not escape. escape. Oh, you're so good. Let's try one more time. We'll, we'll not escape. escape. All together now. We'll, we'll not escape. I love it. Till Elizabeth Murray gets more of these award things, or we drown first in art in an Elizabeth Murray painting, whichever comes first, or maybe the oral tradition will make a comeback thanks to poems like this and also the poetry club I'm trying to start on the Bowery and looking for investors to buy real estate for art. New model. If interested, see me after the poem. Meanwhile, we're all dipping in the cup, kicking in the cups. Meanwhile, kicking in the cups. Kicking in the cups. Call and response. Kicking in the cups. Kicking in the cups. We give praise. Oh, yeah, praise. Hey, ho, oh, I do love this griot job. Composing praise poems is as easy as saying Elizabeth Murray, totally great artist. Dr. Elizabeth Rose Murray, we are drowning in your art and handing over prizes, doctorates, fellowships, awards for what you give us is incalculable. And all we do in return is praise, 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 which humbly means thank you to you, Elizabeth Murray. While you were reading that, it sounded to me in some ways like a, a, a Hebrew prayer being uh, chanted. That was my 
resonant. I don't listen to Well, I, you know, it should be something like, because I am half Jewish. Yeah, so you were, you were born uh, in uh, Harlan, Kentucky in 1948, the child of a coal miner's daughter and the only Jew in town. That would be me, except it was actually La Follette, Tennessee, but we're not going to get into the All details. Right. <laughs> I say I'm from Kentucky. You pick where you're from, right? And I'm from Kentucky. All right. That's where my folks are from. And your dad uh, killed himself when you were two? Yeah, that's uh, wow. something to say in an yeah. hour and a half interview. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Benjamin Franklin Geller, mm. he was, son of uh, Ukrainian immigrants who sold pots and pans door to door in Harlem before it evolved into the 12 mm-hmm. department stores that Solomon had. Yeah. And you were raised in rural Ohio. Yes. Your mother remarried. Yeah. Yeah. Holman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In kindergarten, uh, usually you switch from morning to afternoon. Uh, but they kept me in morning and uh, switched my name. What were you like when you were about 12 years old? 12. 12. I was just meeting Hank Kuhn, whose uh, parents were intellectuals. And it was my first grasp at uh, a world of art and it was you know I played I played baseball basketball football I was good at them and um, I would take uh, long walks alone you know over the hill out in the in the country yeah that was 12. Mm. And how did you get to uh, Columbia from rural Ohio? Back pocket, uh, City Lights pocketbook of, uh, you know, Howl and Gasoline by Corso, etc. You know, just loved, I mean, poetry for me really was the, w- the way out, you know. I mean, you when did you say, first encounter poetry? Um, <clears throat> my mother, you know, I, I, my mother read poems to me and sang lullabies to me, which are poems. And her way of teaching reading to me, I mean, reading, learning to read is the miracle we never talk about. You know, the switching over from morality to literacy in one's own being, you know. And she just really, you know, I could hear the words come off the page. And when I found poetry, it just was like, wow. But then in third grade, um, I was sick and I came back and they had done poetry in the school for the first time. And I, these poems, they were up on the board. They were just terrible. Um, and so I wrote my first poem at that point. It was being a, you know. You were old? I was nine. And the poem was, it shows how politically correct a nine-year-old could be in Cincinnati, Ohio in you remember the early it? 50s. Yeah, I don't remember the poem, but I do remember the title. It was called um, George Washington Followed Indian Trails. Mm. He may have been the father of our country, but there were people here before him, you know. And uh, I took it up to the teacher, Miss Klein, and she said, Oh, Robert, this is a wonderful poem. Where did you copy it from? Mm-hmm. Now, I was lucky enough to say I wrote it myself and she believed me. Now there are stories of course where they said, here lion and they just beat him up and then, but whatever it is, you, uh, that was enough for me to realize, boy this is, you can really get over if you're gonna write poems, nobody knows, you know, so. 
That reminds me, uh, on, on, uh, I found somewhere on the web, you were asked to recommend poems that everybody should know mm. at ask.com. And here's one that you recommended that I'd love to ask, ask you to read. Do you remember that? Oh, Autopsychography by Fernando Pessoa himself. I said, because uh, Pessoa, you know, the great Portuguese modernist clerk and translator, very quiet guy. And uh, he had, like many of he had uh, um, imaginary friends when he was little, except when he grew up, they did too. And he wrote their poems for them. And then he wrote criticism from them about each other. And it wasn't unusual in those days um, to op- in Lisboa to open up a book of a, a magazine of poetry, and 25% of the poets were him with his other names, with his heteronyms. Um, and one of his heteronyms was also named um, uh, Fernando Pessoa. Okay. There's more, but this is called autopsychography. The poet is a faker who's so good at his act, he even fakes the pain of pain he feels, in fact. And those who read his words will feel in what he wrote neither of the pains he has, but just the ones they don't. And so around its track, this thing called the heart winds, a little clockwork train to entertain our minds. Isn't that a sweet poem? Oh, my God. Yeah. It's on my floor in yeah. New York. You've never been to my place, but uh-huh. I got poems painted on the floor uh-huh. there, and that's that whole poem is there, usually just squibs, but that whole one is there. I love Peshoa and what he did. When he died, he left a trunk that they're still excavating that so far has over 700 different poets, all of them him, that he wrote in there. I don't know. You can see why we don't study him in the United States. (laughs) Amazing. He was Portuguese or Brazilian? Portuguese. Portuguese. Uh Spent some time in South Africa, and so he spoke English in Durban, you know, when his mother remarried. So there's so many directions we could go here, uh, but the place we should probably go next um, is to your work with uh, endangered languages, uh, which uh, you, you speak of language as the soul of culture. And uh, before we started, uh, we were having a very interesting conversation about the decision in Israel to resuscitate Hebrew uh, as opposed to allowing people to speak Yiddish and Ladino, which were living languages. Could you talk a little about your view of that? Yeah. Um, it's like anything you talk about with uh, the situation there, it's, 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 it's controversial, right? Um, but for me, the, what we've got is an entrenched situation that now is being... I just see these missiles flying over and the hands of Israel getting up to grab them all and throwing them back. It's a a mythic, horrific 
We're speaking in November 2012 during, uh, during a new uh, period of intense uh, bombardment both ways. With right. the First time Tel Aviv and Jerusalem have yeah. been bombed in, I don't know, a decade, yeah. 30 yeah. years maybe, yeah. you know, 40. Um, well, there, in, in studying, uh, you know, the language crisis, uh, of the 7,000 languages on earth, half will disappear uh, in this century, in the next 80 years, uh, which means that we're losing a language every two weeks. We've got laws to protect plants and animals that are endangered, but whole systems of consciousness, this seems to have escaped our notice thus far. I believe it's going, in the next period of time, we're going to become aware of what it means to lose your own identity to the homogenization of corporate global capitalism or whatever you want to call that horrific triumph that's going on by the, the greed mongers right now. Um, in, uh, in Israel, you have an example of how to resuscitate a language that is unparalleled, that the Zionists decided that the language of their new state of the promised land should be God's tongue, and that the uh, and that Hebrew, which um, up to, at that point was only spoken in the uh, in the temple, should be brought out into this new uh, new land, Israel, which meant. That you had to appoint a committee to add 700 years of vocabulary. But there was this one astonishing man who was the heart of the whole deal. Oh, gosh. I mean... Well, I can't remember his name. Who can remember his name? Does anybody remember his Google, name? Google, Google, Google. Okay. So, but there's anyway. one guy who, who really was responsible for this. Yep. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, utopian idea. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. But, of course, to make it work, you had to force everybody to stop speaking the language that your family had been speaking. And the story of, uh, of Yiddish, which is German-Hebrew, um, the Ashkenazi uh, uh, ver uh, um, version, and then Ladino, which was the Spanish um, uh, Hebrew for the Sephardic tradition. Um, is just an extraordinary one. Never has there been a language that moved so fast as Yiddish did out of Germany and through Eastern Europe all the way through um, in, into the Baltic states and picking up languages. In fact, many people say there is an Italian, Hebrew, etc., etc. But it picked up all these languages. And when you hear Yiddish, you know it because it feels like that. It feels like it feels. It feels like you're speaking feeling. And when you know the whole Michigas, you know the whole Michigas, you know. And uh, it's just the greatest of languages. In New York, there were, um, there were 20 different daily newspapers in Yiddish going on during the high point. And, of course, a whole literature, a whole way of thinking based on Yiddish. And it was global in the way that it was published. It's such an exciting thing. And then Holocaust and Yiddish really gets chopped but survives only to discover that Israel is coming and we will speak God's tongue. And so people were forbidden from speaking Yiddish or Ladino. 
you know, I mean, because we want to give up the shtetl and move on. We got a time to move on here. Oh, well, if we only knew what we know, you know, and now you run into the people who, whose parents spoke English and they skipped their generation and how much they want their children to be speaking that language that is them, you know, and these find this, every, you know, on the reservations here in the U.S., you know, you see this. It's, it's, it's sad. I mean, to see a last speaker, can you have a last speaker when you don't have a last listener? You know, the whole... The whole, the whole family down to you, right? And, and, and the, I'm forgetting these words. They've never been written down. I'm forgetting them. And it's going like the words are just dissolving in air. And those words are, of course, what connects you to that place on earth. The wisdom that has been drawn from the earth into this essence of what humans do, which is we can say it to communicate it. You know? So... Um, so my idea then is, well, what would happen if we made the official, if we made uh, Yiddish and Ladino official languages again? If we re recognized those traditions. And we made Arabic really into an official language also. And if the Knesset were really uh, used different languages, you know, because when you use different languages, you open things up. You know, to me, it's the intractability of Israel that is the problem of Israel-Palestine. You know, and if you've ever uh, walked, if you've ever had to go through those, the security wall, or I forget what the other name, there's the names of, the, if you have to go through the wall, you know, you know, that you're passing into a play, a prison, into apartheid. You know, you know you're doing this when you see the identity cards. You know, you do that. You see, well, that's it. Just if we ask the questions in different languages, Maybe we could open up different ways of communicating. That's the, that's the theory, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, far-fetched, but no more far-fetched than the way that Hebrew came back. And if we get to a place with our languages where we realize that children can learn as many languages as you throw at them, it's as miraculous as learning to read. The way the children can learn languages, we can't. But up to 12, they can't. So why not spend that time learning languages instead of trying to memorize past tenses when you're in high school or college or something, you know? Why not just teach them then and then see, you know, open up the, the, the fullness of, of, of uh, you know, of, of, of humanity and culture in, in that way. So. so which were the languages and the places that you and David Grubin decided to Used for the PBS uh, documentary. You're making. We we are uh, going to go to Australia, Hawaii, and Wales. And why those three? Um, they represent three stages on on the uh, on the the, uh, the lost continuum. The lost continuum. Thank you. And say a little more about uh, um, Australia, where uh, there were 250 languages before a white guy arrives. They're down now to 50 Aboriginal languages. Um, from three global families, I might add, which is to say, only to differentiate from what, from, from New York City to uh, Moscow, all the languages you travel through are one, brand, are one family, right? The Indo-European. Um, but in Australia, the Aboriginals have three different families, just 
there, and a matter of fact, not only just there, but in the place we're going to visit, North Arnhem Land, um, which is way out back, um, there are, there's a 200-kilometer stretch that has 16 languages from three different families with no geographic uh, 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 forms to keep you from, you step over this little creek and you're in another language, right? It's not unusual for people to speak six languages. There's one of them that uh, where you can't marry anyone who speaks your language, which I think should be looked into in a way to have better languages if the, if the bride and groom or don't speak the same language. By the way, bride and groom is now multisexual, you know, either sex to be either one, pick it. And, um, one language, the 5,000 is the largest population for a language, and, and right now five for the smallest. So we'll visit these languages and show, both see what it's like to see a language dying. You got to see this. But you also see what it's like to have uh, multilinguality as a natural human condition, which is the way out, you know. So um, then... Hawaii. Um, did you know that Hawaii actually has two official languages? Hawaiian is an official language of Hawaii. And in the early 60s, there were 400 speakers of Hawaiian, and now there are 10,000. Now, 10,000 isn't a lot of people, but it's a start. Now the immersion schools, and this, my lei here I'm wearing to remind me of the children um, from Hilo, from uh, the Hawaiian Immersion School at what they call a punana leo, means a language nest um, where you only speak uh, Hawaiian. And here, you know, they make lays. They also, their, their brothers and sisters and all make boats of the Hawaiian canoes and they do gardening with Hawaiian, you know, so the curriculum is culturally based as well as total immersion for language. And... Uh, but these, if you, and if you can't see them, these are not real flowers. They would have, unfortunately, wilted by now. This was about a month ago. I was there at the Punanaleo. Uh, they're made out of straws, plastic straws and paper and, uh, and a piece of yellow yarn that holds it all together. Hmm. So they're learning the tradition, but they're also getting those little small motor skills. Very cool curriculum for the three-year-olds and four-year-olds. Um, but they are, some of them are being raised in Hawaiian-speaking homes because graduates of the uh, immersion school are now having children, and they're raising their children in Hawaiian. So for the first time in a century, children are being raised in the, la in the language. And there's a feeling in Hawaii that, you know, that the language is worth learning, which is the question always, you know, why should I? You know, why shouldn't I tell the story of how uh, of, of of colonialism in the language of the colonizers, in the language of the oppressors, because you want other people to hear it, and so in doing, you write it in French or English. You know, one of the the um, the contradictions are so full and can only be spoken in the mother tongues. And then the third is Wales. And the third is Wales, where we act, where I spent a couple of months this summer and had been bef before. We're actually have been trying to learn 
Welsh, um, Dwin Hofisharad Gimraig. Um, I like to speak Welsh. And that is the only language that's been on the endangered list and then come off. How did that happen? And you go there and you hang out and see not only their immersion schools, which are called language nests, um, but you also uh, see the Eisteddfod, which is their annual uh, Woodstock for language, where they have uh, competitions, not for pigs or, or pies, but for poetry. And if you win the big prize, you get to take home the chair, hand-carved, beautiful chair. You take that chair home and you sit on it and you write more poems. It's a great idea. You know, so uh, I love, I had such a great, I just admire the Welsh so what so got much. you into endangered languages? Well, um, the, the way that hip-hop got me started and the way in, 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 in engaging personally in orality, the, my students, when I would give them their reading list, and we'd be talking about hip-hop and, you know, LL Cool J, I would be telling the story about how LL Cool J was, I named him the poet of the year because he rhymed Ayatollah with granola, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> But they'd say, it's not relevant for me to read this stuff. I said, well, what is relevant? And they say, you're the teacher. You know, what is relevant is that you understand that this is an African-American oral tradition, and it goes back through call and response and gospel and, and, and back into the dozens and back across the middle passage into Africa. So I went to there, and, and there I not only saw the uh, strength of of the culture, of the orality, with the where, where uh, the the oral tradition was still um, vibrant, and um, but also saw that many languages were disappearing. You did a uh, uh, a Link TV piece called "On the Road with Bob Holman: A Poet's Journey into Global Cultures and Languages." It says, "What happens when a downtown New York poet of the hip hop and slam persuasion?" discovers that the roots of spoken word go back thousands of years and span the globe. If he's Bob Holman, he goes on the road to track them down. And so uh, it's episode one, is, the, is it the griots? Is that Griot, G-R-I-O-T. Of West, Griot. Uh, West Africa. Right. And the second is from Timbuktu to the Dogons. Is the that? Dogons, right. And then Israel and the West Bank. So, And this was a precursor to the PBS mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So... But was there a moment when you decided that this was a major part of your life journey? Yeah. When I, was I, 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 I wish I could remember an exact moment. You know, I think it came when the idea of Grio became Papa Suso, became the guy. And I realized that, you know, I, you can't really... So, say more about Papa Suso. Well, Papa Suso is... Uh, of, is, is a griot, which means you uh, are the keeper of the oral tradition. Uh, the epic, of, there are several epics, but the main one is the uh, story of, of Sunjata, the first emperor of Mali. And griots are a steady line from then. The, you play a musical instrument called the kora in this tradition. There are other African traditions with other instruments or no instrument. But the uh, kora is a beautiful 21-stringed harp lyre made out of a, uh, 
um, a calabash, a big gourd that you cut in half. Um, and uh, Papa and I met in Eritrea in 2000. I was invited to participate in a, a, a conference called uh, Against All Odds, African Language and Literature in the 21st Century. And they invited me and they invited Papa and they invited Tom Hale, the uh, University of Pennsylvania professor who wrote the book Griots and Griots, Griot being female Griots, and Papa had been his main informant, and so we're sitting there, and I'm talking, and I just can't believe, like, here is the book. This guy, this was the book, is good, but this guy is the book, you know? So he and I have been, you know, very good friends. I've, I, you know, I learned from him all the time. Daisy knows about this. Um, he's... He actually was at uh, Daisy's sister Sophie's wedding recently where he gave us a wedding song. And, um, so you have a poem actually called How Cora Was Made yeah. from Sing This One Back to Me, which is your, the new uh, manuscript you're working on. Could you read that to us? I would, be, I would be overjoyed to read How Cora Was Made, which usually I read this with uh, Papa. I mean, often I read it with Papa. He and I have toured around together. There's a marvelous little introduction to this section in here. Good. Uh, the first writing I know that Papa's published. But here's the poem. So you got to imagine Papa, you know, in his beautiful um, boo-boo, grand boo-boo, which is the beautiful robes and his hat, not this hat. And he's playing this instrument and he's singing. Whee! Am I still connected? Okay. He's singing and in Mandinke, which I don't speak. And the way that I translate is, I say, what's that mean? And he says, oh, Bob. And then I write down, oh, Bob, you know? Because the, the thing about orality is the anthropologist never can tell when the poem begins. Um, generally, I think the poem begins with, excuse me, could you all come inside? I want to start the poem now. Is usually the first line of the poem. This story begins long, 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 long ago. So long ago that it was a place, not a time. There was a man, he was so alone, the only person he could talk to was Africa. Luckily, there was a tree nearby. Even more luckily, behind that tree, that's where his partner was hiding. Now, all the sun and all the water were condensed into a single tiny block, which the man planted in the sandy soil. He blew and he blew on that spot. Each time he blew, he thought he heard something. What he was hearing was, of course, his partner singing. The man didn't uh, know what singing was because uh, he could only talk. He couldn't sing yet. So he blew, and he listened. And blew, listened, blew, listened, blew, listened, and the plant pushed out dark green and began to twist and grow a vine reaching for the breath and stretching towards the song because it was made from the sun and the rain. Do you remember? So at the end of that vine, that was the calabash. 
And the tree wasn't a tree anymore. It was the neck and the handles. And that's when the man's partner, Saba Kadane, came out into the open. But that's another story. And the breath and the singing and the vine, well, there are 21 strings. What do you think? And now you say, what about the bridge and the cowhide and, and then the rings that tie the strings to the neck because it's a pre-peg technology? That's the way you tune the Cora. Hey, what about the thumbtacks that hold the cowhide taut over the calabash and the resonator hole? Well, you go right on talking about all that. I'm playing Cora now. Next time, I'll tell you about the cow. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. You know, it's so amazing because I've been immersed in the study of archetypal psychology for the last four months, and I've been reading James Hillman and uh, Thomas Moore. And this morning, I was reading um, a collection of excerpts from uh, uh, Hillman's work that Thomas Moore put together, and one of the excerpts was um, a Greek myth. And I'm trying to remember who the protagonist is, whether it was Hermes or somebody. But this protagonist comes out of the cave. And, uh, you know, it might be Orpheus, actually, is the mm. protagonist. I think it's Orpheus. He comes out of the cave, and he sees the turtle. And he says to the turtle, what a nice day it is. And the turtle says, fine. And, 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 and Orpheus, let's say, says, uh, you know, you're such a wonderful beast, but, but dead you will be more than this. And he picks the turtle up and stabs him and takes him inside and scoops him out and makes him into uh, a lyre, ah. which was the, you know, the poet's... Uh, yeah, yeah. instrument the first and, banjo exactly and there's exactly the same story of how he stretched uh, a skin over the lyre and uh, am i pronouncing it right is yeah, it yeah. Lyre? Yeah, yeah and um and i think there are seven strings on the lyre wow. and the greek mythology has a whole of course that's the octave it became the yeah. octave and so forth um but uh it's so to hear you happen to read this, when I happened to have read this uh, excerpt from Hillman this morning, uh, it's an amazing experience. It's amazing. You know, what I just find that moment, especially now, because we're moving into the third, to me, the third consciousness, digital, we call it digital, so it may get a new name. To me, digital is a synthesis of orality and literacy. But to feel the power of the orality come through the literacy is to remember that we're not talking about a progression. We're not talking about a pre-literate society. We're talking about a society that had a different consciousness because we had to hold all the memories ourselves until we found the way to hold the memory to the book. Now, once we gave the memory to the book, we were so relieved that we just gave all the memory to there and we forgot about the fact of orality and what and the pleasures and joys that the, that the oral uh, b bring us, you know. The, um, but you know that uh, 
when writing first came in, it was regarded with deep suspicion. Well, why a, not? Yes, Ooh. of course. Deep suspicion. Now, I love books. Right. I mean, philosophers, for example, the Greek philosophers questioned whether philosophy, the love of knowing, could actually be done in writing. They believed it could actually only be done in living discourse. And the same with poetry, of course. So that, that, that surrender, um, on the one hand, was a relief and created, of course, a vast possibility. But on the other hand, uh, it was regarded with uh, something approaching terror. Uh, by the people who knew what they would lose, it seems to me. Well, I, I, I would, don't know if we would go that far now as to say that us old foggies are, uh-huh. have terror about the loss of this form of the book. And, you know, even when I say Papa Suso was the book, I'm speaking from a literacy point of view, you know, Vincent Katz said to me the other day, oh, it's so great for me to be able to speak Portuguese because finally I can, I don't have to, it's, 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 I, can, I can really read what the person's saying. I get the complete subtext. I'm saying, yeah, right, except for the fact that you're reading a person. So we're talking about orality and you get the subtext. I mean, the book has so formulated us that a poet is a person who writes in a book and a person who uses the origins of poetry is called a spoken word poet. We define what, in ter- you know, in terms of the uh, the precursor. You know. So when when Seventeen Magazine calls you the dean of the scene, <laughs> um, describe for us what that scene is that you preside over, or maybe that's probably the wrong word, but. What is the scene actually like that you inhabit in New York? I know you keep bees on your roof, by the way. <laughs> I know they were badly damaged in the hurricane, but the three hives are still alive. But that's a, another that's story. That's another story. But yeah. describe to me what the scene is like in New York. Like when you, in the course of a day um, or a week, give us some images of, of what you're doing and where you're going and what happens and so on. Oh, you know, it, it is a scene that uh, caught the Academy completely by surprise. Surprise. Um, that is, um, you know, all the readings, all the money, all the accolades were going to, you know, the, this world that Helen Vendler was overseeing and had its roots back in the uh, the Norton anthology. Harvard, uh, Helen Vendler being the Harvard uh, Shakespeare, Shakespearean uh, scholar who edited Shakespeare's sonnets. Right. Things, right. And gave us the benefit of her reading of them. Right. Oy. Right. But um, what happened was that uh, with, with hip-hop, um, Poetry and and the poetry slam, both of which happened in there at the uh, the end of the uh, the eighties, uh, as far as hip hop and poetry melding. Hip hop had actually started a decade before. Um, there was uh, um, with the multiculti movement, there was an opportunity you know, where schools were opening up to other voices. The academy was opening up to other voices. Um, the the Latino Studies Department, African American Studies, Women's Studies. You could read about it, or you could go down to the New Yorican Poets Cafe, go to a slam, 
which is a, uh, a performance form where the audience, where judges in the audience um, rate the poems with scorecards as if it was an Olympic diving competition. You know, we're now 25 years past, or however many years past that, but people still now don't get what a slam is. We think of a slam as a guy standing in front of you yelling at you, you know. But in fact, it means to pick judges out of an audience who don't have credentials and give numerological equivalents to these poems, which is impossible. And yet... And made fun of by an academy who have supposedly have credentials and make three piles, yes, no, and maybe, about what's going to go into the next issue of my magazine where I'm the god, you know. Instead, we pick, you know, John Q. Public to hold up 8.2. It was just a big, riotous uh, fun. And all of a sudden, the... Uh, the, the, you went to, instead of going to a poetry reading, you'd go to a poetry slam, which is much sexier. And you didn't know who was going to read. You just were going to the event, you know. And it wasn't going to be two people. It was going to be four, six, eight. And you weren't going to sit there for 45 minutes. You were going to sit there for one poem, and then another guy would come up. So if you don't like it, good. Here comes somebody else. I mean, that was a, that was a huge And then that hip-hop... So if you, went, if you went to the New Yorican, you'd hear and the voices of all these people because there's no waiting in line or serving a, a, a cocktail party apprenticeship program. You just came and signed up and you were reading a poem in front of everybody. Poetry can do that. The open mic is, 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 is the ultimate in democracy. So I'm, I know I'm getting off point here, but um, my, my day does involve still... These generations now, like like the uh, like Urban Word called Youth Speaks here in in San Francisco, um, where you know, when I was coming up, what is a young poet? A young poet, you're going for the Yale Younger Poets Prize, which means that you're under forty, and you're on a tenure track. That's pretty much what a young poet was. And now a young poet is fourteen years old, getting up there reading their own from their own voice to you. You know, the, 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 what Whitman saw as the, uh, the, you know, the great carols of this country from the, being the different voices of the people was coming back into, into existence. And so I'm, you know, I get called on to do, to, to find spoken word poets to be in advertisements. Um, I, uh, I, I, teach a course at NYU on poetry census where the, where the students learn activism and uh, through Barack Obama's uh, street uh, uh, work in Chicago on how to go out and find poetry in other languages. Um, I'm working on the, I, we've got a, a vehicle called the Poemobile now, an old FedEx truck painted with 100 poems that has a projector on the roof that when you stand beside the poemobile reading your poem, projects your poems onto buildings in your mother tongue and then uh, morphs into English because of the great software that we've got there. And of course, I'm on the third floor over the shop where the Bowery Poetry Club is undergoing renovations where when we reopen, we'll be making one of those it got strange alliances. No, no, 
We were the Bowery's in the middle of the island, so we missed electricity for five days, but, but it wasn't was not yeah. flooded. Two avenues over was flooded. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, no, it's being renovated by Dwayne Park, which is our new partner, who harkens back to the old populist art of the Bowery burlesque. So it's going to be a combo burlesque club, poetry club now, with fine dining. New, uh, with New Orleans food in an attempt to become sustainable in the next... You said you know. there's a saying that nobody ever went uh, broke running a bar in New York, but you're going to try? We, it, it, it happened. The poets just would not drink enough to, to pay the rent. I mean, they, it was, and it was only PBRs that they were drinking, you know, so what do you do? But anyway, they'll run their shows, um, uh, and then Poetry Club will be on Sundays and Mondays. So before it was seven days a week, but we were doing so much programming just to make money so we could keep the poetry going. Why don't we let these guys pay the rent and we'll just run the poetry on two days a week. And so we'll see what, what happens. Mm. It's a 10-year lease. Wow. You've got a, a poem called Dance Mix. Would you read it for us? Yeah, the Dance Mix comes, comes from, from Picasso in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. It's in... Uh, which is, a poem. I've, Elizabeth got me to go to a lot of museums. And uh, so this is a poem based on the uh, Picasso Museum in Barcelona, where he wrote his poems, or I mean, wrote his poems. He, yes, Picasso was a poet, because nobody knows it. He was where he painted his first paintings when they moved to Barcelona. In fact, it was when he painted a painting on top of his father's painting, that he really sort of took over. Hmm. His dad decided that he would just be a teacher from then on, let Pablo paint. Now the mother, his mother, kept all of these paintings. See, that's how you get to be Picasso. Get a mother to keep all your paintings so that you can have a whole museum dedicated to them in Barcelona. So this is Picasso uh, talking to you. This is a whole little book of his poems. It looks like that which I'm showing, flipping through pages of beautiful little poems in the middle of the page. Some of them just one line long. They're all short. And, uh, but the dance mix, you put them all together so you can dance to them and you translate them into Spanish as well. A los catorce podía pintar mejor que Leonardo da Vinci. At 14, I could paint better than Leonardo da Vinci. So after that, I could dash it off to prove I could and then paint myself in a motherfucking wig. In 1900, the future opened up its arms. I invented the car and Rembrandt. I'll show you. My mother is the sea. She heaves under the white foam. I look at people. I paint them looking at me. Take off your clothes. I will make a book cover and put a photo of me on the back to make sure it sells. I'm working hard now on my signature. <laughs> Nakeder, instanter. With my other eye, I am looking at you. My love, will you hold this brush in your mouth while I thrust the canvas up and down. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank me. Of course I will marry you as soon as I finish this damn painting. No more. No more. These would look good in the living room over the sofa. I could get closer, but the paint sticks to my nose. <laughs> Have I told you about my nose yet? It is not, for example, in the center of my face. <laughs> in fact, it is not on my face at all. <laughs> Here, dance the flamenco on a cork, and later that cork is all you will wear. Then use the cork to paint with, then paint with a the cork, then put your nose back on your face. See if I care. They call me genius, but I cannot confront death. Don't you know my loves, my sandals, my sail, my sad? All I paint is death. Every morning I wake up, give myself a big kiss, and paint a masterpiece. <laughs> then I have a coffee. That's part of the dance mix. Picasso uh. <laughs> in Barcelona. I don't know who I find. You know, I've done almost 200 of these interviews, and I gotta say, this is probably the most fun I've ever had during that. <laughs> Art is fun. No, it's mm -hmm. really amazing. Uh, you're totally awesome. I mean, all of us here are just. I'm uh, gonna, can I use that as a blurb? Yeah, you totally can. Totally awesome. My you blurb. are totally awesome. It's just an extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary experience to be with you. So, um, I wanna open it up to the uh, folks who are here for any questions or comments anybody might have. I want to start, uh, Joanne Kiger, would you be, since you're a friend and a uh, longtime uh, friend of Bob's, any thoughts or reflections from you about this? How old are you? I am uh, 64. Will you still need me? Well, we still want, how's it go? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greetings, follow one. Um, I heard that you're having a new book of uh, selected poems. It's new poems, yeah, from our press, you know, from Coffee House. Um, Sing This One Back to Me, it's called. Three sections. First is art poems similar to Picasso and Barcelona and the Second is translations from Papa Suso. Um, and the third section is uh, about family stuff. In fact, why don't we take this moment to ask you to uh, read us the last uh, poem and sing, sing this one back to me. Okay, because it just happens to be the title poem. Mm -hmm. Oops, but I don't have it in this version. What I have here is poem for my daughters in the new year. Oh, well, that'll do it. Diving straight down at our red chimney, the green is powering up at me. Electric lines give off blue sparks. The clouds are layers of white and pink sharks. I see like I see the city like Oz over my wing. What can I give you now? Anything? Sophie, you are 12 and making up a world, brashly. 
Daisy, you are nine and dreaming in an envelope cozily. I have a poem for each of you with love and your name because to me they mean the same. Other questions, thoughts, comments? If you're writing from memory a lot, is there a lot of variation that goes on each time you do a poem? Papa Suso, when I, when I said to him, uh, do you do the poem the same way every time? He says, Bob, there's only one Sunjata story. I know it. You know, I know that. I said, well, uh, how, how long is it? He says, well, it's long, 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 long. You know, but if you put that in, in a story and sent to the New Yorker, they cross out all the longs but one and say, use adverbs. Very long, awesomely long, you know. But I say, well, okay, look at the Fagel's translation of the Iliad and the Odyssey, 450 pages, 425 pages. Now, how long is Sunjata? He says, two days. So you do it the same way every time. Yes, it's the same story. Aha! I recorded yesterday's version and today's version, and they're completely different. Well, wasn't yesterday completely different from today? <laughs> so yes, it's, it's, you know, again, the concept of memorizing comes with book, unless you do like they did with the Ramayana and Sanskrit and sit down and learn every nuance of the cadence, and it, then you can pass it on, but that takes this, and this tradition is like this. So yeah, you 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 mix and match and so there are move two real oral traditions. One is that it's freestyle, and the other, as you say, is an incredible capacity to transfer orally for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, precisely the same. Uh, Which I've only found in the Sanskrit and in the Maori. Well, what know. about the Hebrew? Well, and the Hebrew. Yeah, there's yeah, there is. That's why we do the the. That's why right. the bar mitzvah is the bar mitzvah. Right. You know, yeah. Well, but how do you come to um, an understanding of your final poem on the page if you have this variation? Yeah. Well, as as Seku Sanjata, my partner in Mouth Almighty Records, said, "I ain't finished one yet." Or as Paul Blackburn did, you know, or Auden, you know what I mean? You take the finished version and you keep working on it. I think that's all hearkening back to that, you know, and and I, and I see it like that. Although I am not going to change my early work because really, you know, you read, that's why, you know, if you read what Whitman did to his, you know, to Leaves of Grass, you say, what is this? But if you read the original, you say, oh, this, you know. Um, but the idea of, of this is the finished version is, is an idea of, of literacy. You know, this is, it, this, oh, it's in the book, it's done. We can put it away until, you know, the book dissolves or you rewrite it or whatever. So, you know, I'm working with Alan Kornblum on this version. And Alan is the publisher of, of, or creator of uh, Coffee House Press, which is a fantastic, fantastic uh, press. And um, he loves to get the final version, get in there and do it. And I love to do it too, you know, to really, really make it be as perfect as you can for right now. But I have no doubt that if I were to, to do it later, it would, it would change. And that's, you see, that's where 
you know, the, the, um, the audacity of literature, which would be a good book, um, of saying this is the final version is hilarious, you know. And, uh, but it doesn't mean you don't want to, to do it. And I am even a believer in correct spelling, which, of course, is now being tossed out like so many other crucial ideas as writing goes back to conversation in, uh, in instant messaging and, 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 and Twitter, you know? It's, uh, that's the orality part of the uh, equation. Any other questions? Does what you just said about the final thing in the literacy change with the digital uh, age emerging? You described going from oral to literacy. Sure. You know, even look, even look at it with the cloud now, you know, that, uh, I mean, it, the, we used to have these records, these physical objects that were the thing, you know, that, you know, this is the book. Yeah, you can see the effects of, of, of literacy in so many places. You know, we don't play the repeats in Mozart. A lot of orchestras have dropped m many of the repeats in Mozart now because we have so many important things that we have to go do. We can't sit there and listen to it again. But back in the day, people wanted to hear it again so they could remember it. But now, of course, you just get into the car and throw the, the CD in there, and you can hear it again. So you don't have to worry about that. You can go on and listen to something else. That's, to me, another example of literacy overtaking um, orality. And, uh, yeah, I think that uh, um, it's a much more disposable, in a way, much more immediate in another way. You know, it's got its pluses and minuses, but... Um, I think that those changes are much easier to make. It's the difference between cut and paste and white out. Bob, um, you sometimes do spontaneous on-the-spot poems, I know, because you did one over dinner on uh, the night of uh, uh, Obama's oh. first debate. Oh, don't bring up that night. That's so depressing. <laughs> But at least I got to meet you. Yeah, we had a good time. Yeah, we had a good time. So I wonder, here you are uh, at Commonweal at the new school, um, sitting with a community of friends. Would you close with uh, a little spontaneous something? This spontaneous something is no benediction. Benediction, well-spoken, and here I ain't. Somehow, the how will be sometimes now. But if you have an idea, you can paint the ain't. Now, I just got one final thing to say, and then I'll just shut up forever. And that would be the way that the words make a river. And if you all wouldn't mind just having a mind that would take and return. There's only one thing to learn that would be to please now. Sing this one back to me. <laughs> Bob Holman, thank you for being with us at the new school. It's My real pleasure. It's real joy. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here, guys. We had a good time.
how can people go to the poetry readings in New York? Um, BoweryPoetry.com is the website, and the Bowery Poetry Club is on the Bowery. And I'm going to change the name from Bowery Poetry Club to Bowery Poetry. So there's not going to be a club anymore. And it Bob's is, website is BobHolman.com. I'm BobHolman.com. Wonderful website. Well worth uh, visiting. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.